Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Show. To learn more about what was discussed in this episode, including device configuration and specific examples, and how to listen to other episodes, go to www.cisco.com slash go slash security podcast and navigate to the Tax Security Show section. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number four of the Tax Security Show, where our panel of experts discuss all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, new features, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco technical assistance security teams. This episode, um, we've got a special guest speaker, Omar Santos uh, from the PCERT team. He's going to be talking about the uh, Cisco PCERT process, and we'll be talking about firewall failover. We're going to tackle the failover portion in um, two episodes, so part one is going to be discussing failover concepts. So the goal of this show is to provide some useful troubleshooting tips and information directly from the Cisco TAC security teams to you, and we want to give you some of the knowledge and techniques we use in the TAC every day to solve our customers' problems. Okay, let's kick things off. I'm your host, Jay Johnson. I've been with the Firewall TAC team in Research Triangle Park. I have a security CCIE, and I've been with Cisco five years. With me in the studio today, we have a great panel of Firewall experts. I'll start off by introducing Blaine Dreyer, who is a security CCIE, and he's been with the TAC for five years. Blaine, last episode, you were covered in bumps and bruises from moving into your new house. So um, it's a week later. How, uh, how did everything go with the move? I'm all moved in. I cleaned up the garage yesterday, and uh, it's all the little stuff that's the most painful. So I'm getting through that right now, putting away the dishes and, you know, junk like that. It's so annoying. All right. Next up, we got Magnus Mortensen, and it's time to check in with him to see how his CCIE quest is going. Oh, wait, the CCIE is on hold because uh, he's trying to get married. So, um, yep. Magnus, any marriage updates? Uh, we did the food tasting with our caterer, and uh, that was the best lunch I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, Where basically, was the invite? Uh, it's just for me and her. We can't bring everybody. I mean, they, so, so is everyone invited to the wedding and the reception, more importantly? <laughs> Um, open bar, right? It is an open bar. Uh, top shelf goods. Um, now, uh, yeah, I think I think so. I think so. Remote island, right? Yes, we're flying everybody out to Easter that's Island. What we've come to expect. So, hmm. <laughs> who did that before? Uh, no, we're gonna have it over at Easter Island. We figure it works so well for the native inhabitants there. Might as well do it for us. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's coming up here. Not too long from now. Uh, and last but not least, we've got David White. He's actually not last but not least. He's got a CCIE. He's an escalation engineer with ATT&CK, and he's been with Cisco for nine years. Uh, last weekend, Dave had an interesting Chick-fil-A adventure. Tell us about uh, what happened last week. Oh, yeah. So uh, a friend of ours is uh, the grandson of the founder of Chick-fil-A. So we went down to his father's house in Atlanta and met the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, and uh, talked with him, and he walked us around his multiple hangers of old, historic, and very fast cars, including Lamborghinis, Rolls Royces, Model T. where was the invite? And uh, it was pretty yeah. nice. So we lounged around his property all weekend, went swimming, rode motorcycles and four-wheelers, and went out on the lake. And so does it he was have, a really does he have most like a, excellent adventure. Is the lake the shape of like a nugget or something? <laughs> no. and, wow. The fabulous life of David Did he give White you a free Coke card for the rest of your <laughs> No. <laughs> that would be sweet. Well, I wish I could have been there. All right. Uh, also in the studio with us today, we have a special guest, Omar Santos. He's an accomplished author. He's got four books under his belt, and he's a member of Cisco's PCERT Product Security Incident Response Team. He's a nine-year veteran with Cisco. He's previously worked with us in the TAC before joining the Worldwide Security Practices Group. And for the last two years, he has been an incident manager with the PCERT organization. Welcome to the show, Omar. When I first started uh, here at Cisco, you were still in the TAC. So 
I gotta ask, do you ever miss? Do you ever miss the tack? Uh, I was, and actually, I I miss it a lot, even though. Part of uh, my duties right now are fairly similar to Attack, and I still keep in touch with you guys. I'm doing a podcast right now with you guys. So I guess I, I miss, uh, one of the things that I miss is that you learn the vast majority of the technical aspects of you know everything that I learned from Cisco, I actually learned in the Attack. So it's, it's an extremely uh, good opportunity, and I, I miss the action with the customers, even though I still you know do some of it, uh, but I do miss it. All right. Well, um, so tell us, Tell us basically what the P-Cert organization is and um, what you do for P-Cert. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an incident manager within P-Cert. We are actually a team of nine uh, incident managers, uh, active in incident managers. Uh, it's a worldwide team. Uh, we handle all vulnerabilities in Cisco products. Uh, that means from routers all the way to firewalls to uh, management uh, applications and you know pretty much everything. And what we do is uh, we not only investigate and uh, escalate and bring to closure vulnerabilities within Cisco products, but we also, I guess, drive leadership into help proactively improve the security within the Cisco products as well. Um, so tell, so give us an example of, you know, you say vulnerability. Um, give us just a basic example of what we would consider a vulnerability in our product. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, vulnerability, of course, is a wide range of different issues that can be considered vulnerabilities, right? From denial service conditions that can leading to uh, other things like remote code execution and uh, privilege escalations to perhaps you know even something simple like cross-site scripting, uh, things that can lead into information disclosure, uh, information leakage in, into that aspect. So it's a very wide range. Uh, and of course, uh, I can talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. Okay. So when uh, you guys are made aware of a vulnerability, um, I guess most customers think that vulnerabilities are, you know, some customer runs into something and they give us a call and, uh, you know, we now have this major vulnerability and some work goes on behind the scenes, right? Is that is that typically what happens? Is uh, we get vulnerabilities from customers? Yeah, so that's a very good uh, question. Uh, we do get incident reports from all over the place. So from you guys, from the tech, get it from directly from customers. We get it sometimes from a external organizations, researchers, and a lot of them we actually get it internally. We have a lot of uh, sister teams that they do vulnerability and penetration testing. So, so I think that's important for customers to know too. Is that uh, Absolutely. I think there's several groups within Cisco that their sole purpose is to try to find vulnerabilities before we actually ship the code. And one thing that I want to highlight is the difference between a threat and a vulnerability, right? So sometimes, of course, we get reports that can, again, vary from a simple cross-site scripting to all the way to a denial service condition that can lead into a remote code execution and, of course, take over a specific device. So that's you know one of the worst-case scenarios. Uh, but we also get a lot of, uh, I guess, input from external and internal uh, parties on ba basic threats. You know, what can be exploited within a, a device in a theoretical uh, perspective, right? So not only we investigate those, but we we proactively enhance some of the uh, capabilities within the products, not only to actually you know, make sure that their vulnerability doesn't exist, but to actually mitigate vulnerabilities that exist in products or that can actually you know, circumvent uh, from a specific threats. So to answer, I guess in summary, we do get reports from external sources, but the majority of the reports are actually internally. Uh, we do a lot of proactive uh, testing, a uh, sister team of ours, a stat, they do penetration, penetration testing, and they uh, 
they have a very systematic way of finding those vulnerabilities or those holes. In, so in say, other words. say we find something, right, either externally or internally. What, mm -hmm. what do we do? I mean, do we, do we uh, tell people about it or uh, do, yep. we, do we not? Yep. So uh, another big, very good question. So basically the PISA process is a very complicated, convoluted, and uh, organized process. But to make it in a, in a nutshell, so basically from the moment that we receive a vulnerability report, and I want to highlight, we investigate every single report, doesn't matter how the risk of that report is, or how, and I, I cover in CVSS scoring a little bit later, uh, we, we pretty much uh, act and document every single report. Then not, not only that, but uh, we engage with, of course, the affected development team that is gonna essentially fix that vulnerability. We work with you guys in the TAC, with AS and different other organizations to evaluate the impact to customers. So let's suppose if there is a worst case scenario that there's active exploitation, we help uh, customers or whoever actually reported the vulnerability mitigate those, perhaps with some routing techniques within the network, uh, control plane policing, if it's in case of a router, perhaps some infrastructure ACLs or transit ACLs and, and firewalls. So we look into IPS signatures. IPS signatures. So we look into what within the infrastructure we can actually leverage that is already assistance, so the customer actually doesn't have to pay for something extra and then mitigate that. Then once we find those workarounds and mitigations and everything, of course we drive the issue, you know, in this case a bug perhaps, to resolution with a specific development team. And then based on the risk, um, we decide, you know, if a security advisory is needed or if we actually uh, just reply back to a, a, a separate security advisory from a, a, an external researcher or an external organization. Uh, so everything that, of course, uh, we investigate, we uh, analyze it or we actually, I guess, uh, calculate the risk using CVSS. So CVSS is Common Vulnerability Scoring System, and I know that you know, a lot of customers are already familiar with that. The beauty of CVSS is that it allows us to you know, not only do the initial triage and the risk analysis, but it also allows the customer to calculate their environmental scores. And what is that? So the customer actually can say, yes, this vulnerability uh, applies to me, or no, this vulnerability actually it has very minimal impact to us. Yeah. Uh, but in a nutshell, yes, we, you know, we do, uh, as part of our process, we document, we follow up every single report. Some of them, of course, are not true vulnerabilities. They are deficiency, architectural deficiencies, so, so we don't uh, publish security advisories for them. For the most severe, of course, we publish security advisories in some cases, actually, there are vulnerabilities that do not only affect Cisco products, but there are industry-wide vulnerabilities. Yeah. So in that case, we, we work with organizations like USERT, uh, InfraGuard, a whole bunch of different organizations to actually, uh, I guess, exercise responsible disclosure. Yeah. So whenever, let's suppose there's, there's an IP protocol vulnerability that affects multiple products or multiple vendors, we work with those vendors, even though in some cases actually are our competitors, but we do work with them to find a resolution and then, of course, programmatically disclose that vulnerability. So if I can uh, just summarize the disclosure process, it's really once something's reported to you, you'll evaluate it based on the impact and either, uh, you know, you'll always follow up with the person reporting it, but you'll either, uh, if, if we determine that it is some type of vulnerability, we'll either release an advisory, in which case it has a CVSS score in which customers can evaluate the impact of their network. If we determine it's not necessarily a vulnerability, but it is uh, a bug, uh, we could file a bug, and the release note enclosure would still disclose whatever information. So either way, we'll always disclose 
are quote unquote vulnerabilities or even things that aren't necessarily reach the vulnerability level. We disclose them to customers. And when it's an industry-wide one, we work with the industry to disclose that as well. So we're not ever hiding any vulnerabilities or any types of things from customers, right? I couldn't summarize it better. Okay, <laughs> great. So when we release, okay, so we know there's a problem uh, with, say, a, a piece of our software, there's some vulnerability there. Um, and we go through the process to determine the extent of the, the vulnerability, and we, um, we know we have a fix for the software out there. Is there a difference? I mean, do we give out, do we just give the software to some of our customers? Do we give them to all of our customers at the same time? How does that, how does that um, process work to get the fix for the vulnerability out to our customers? That's actually a very good question, and it leads to two answers. One is that at first I want to highlight that all customers are notified at the same time. So we, that's the main definition of responsible disclosure, right? So the main purpose of PCERT is to protect you guys, the customers, against you know, vulnerabilities and threats, right? So to make sure that your network is as secure as possible. So in order to do that, and to be fair to everybody, we disclose the vulnerabilities at, you know, at the same time. And so you don't tell certain don't user tell groups a week ahead of others to prepare? Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, on the other hand, as far as fixes, in, some, in most cases, we actually have the luxury that we can have a fix at the moment that we disclose a vulnerability. In some issues, we do not have fixes, and those are mostly whenever either an external researcher or an external organization just publish the vulnerability, and they didn't actually either contact us uh, prematurely so we can prepare for that, or it's something that you know it was found in the wild and there's already active exploitation and we are forced to actually post that security advisory. So, but those are very very rare, and we you know typically of course especially the internally found ones. We will not publish a security advisory until there's a, a fix for the issue. And the fix, of course, is going to be available for everybody at the same time. And I think reading between the lines, too, is because we want, you know, if it's internally found and it's not uh, in the wild, that that process might take a little while because we've got to get fixes in all the different effective platforms. Absolutely. Right? And that takes a little bit of time. Not only we need to get the fixes in all the effective platforms, but we also want to test those fixes so we don't introduce new problems. So in some cases, of course, we have a... You know, the, the, the unfortunate part is that actually if a fix is, in, is introduced and then it causes a, a worse problem than the initial vulnerability, then of course that's not going to protect our customers. So we want to make sure that all the regression is done and all the fixes are in place whenever we uh, disclose. So I guess, you know, let's say I'm a customer and I think I'm under attack. I think I found a vulnerability. What, what do I do? What, what should a customer do if they think they've either A, found a vulnerability, who do they contact, sort of what, what's their venue? Yep, so basically they can contact us at pcert at cisco.com. So that's P-S-I-R-T at cisco.com. Via email. Via email. And if you are under an emergency, so if you think that you're actually under attack, we also have a hotline number. And you can actually call us. The easiest way for you guys is to go to www.cisco.com forward slash security. Okay. And there has our email address. It has the hotline information. So not only if you found a new vulnerability or if you think that actually there's a new threat out there, but if you think that you're under attack, we can help you not only troubleshoot, even if it's not a Cisco uh, issue, related issue, we can help you troubleshoot, uh, mitigate perhaps you know, with some infrastructure devices. But we encourage you that even if you have the very minimal uh, doubt that there is tr it's true a vulnerability, what you have found, you know, please uh, contact us. That's what we're here for. And, and they're available... Uh, 24 by 7, 365 days a year. Oh, That's so correct. 
just uh, go to the website and there's a hotline number you can dial in if you're under active attack or uh, send them an email and someone will respond to you right away. Yes. Yeah, I think the hotline rings your cell phone that you have with you at all given times, right? That's that's, it's, it's the direct to Omar line. <laughs> so hopefully it doesn't ring now. <laughs> and so you mentioned that we have a lot of groups within Cisco that, that actively try to find vulnerabilities in our products and that we take information from external resources. Do we ever seek out information from external resources? We do collaborate with a lot of external researcher resources. Uh, and whenever I say resources, not only the normal researchers out there trying to do penetration testing on the new product, but also with the industry-wide uh, organizations like CERT. In some cases, if it's a, an industry-wide problem, perhaps a, a protocol deficiency, we actually can uh, collaborate with things like ITF, provide some feedback to them so they can implement better ways to mitigate those, those threats within the protocol. So it's, it's it's very generic, my, my answer, but the answer is yes to everything, right? So we collaborate with a lot of people, with external researchers, with external organizations. We do not just fish for information. We just, you know, ma mainly collaborate, right? So. And do you feel that you're kind of on a benevolent, even playing field with all the different organizations and companies that you deal with when you have to disclose something industry-wide? One thing, without patting myself in the back or our team in the back, is that a uh, I guess because we do responsible disclosure and because we collaborate a lot with uh, even competitors, um, some of these vendors and organizations they actually come to us very widely open, right? So uh, that's the beauty of, uh, I guess, our luxury that we have right now, that we have ex extremely well-defined uh, processes, and that allows us also to, I guess, collaborate a little bit better with them. Cool. Great. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Omar. I hope, hope that gives our uh, listeners a better idea of kind of what PCERT does and how Cisco handles, um, you know, the uh, security vulnerability disclosure process. I know there's a whole lot more we could talk about today, but um, we'll leave it uh, to that for time reasons, and we'll go ahead and get into our technical discussion for today, which is failover. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, failover on the ASA and the FWSM platforms. Um, so, first of all, what is failover? So, failover is uh, really about device level redundancy on um, on our firewall platforms. I mean, obviously, in our in, in networks, your firewalls either are on the internet or are definitely um, an, a very critical piece of your business infrastructure. So the idea is to have hardware redundancy so that you don't have a single point of failure there um, in your network. Failover provides some redundancy for things such as hardware problems, like a hardware failure, power failure, things like that, and a software failure, something like a crash or some other software failure on the system. Right, so originally, um Failure was first introduced back on the PIX uh, appliances, and uh, how it got started is there was customer demand that they really didn't want a single point of failure in their network, so they wanted the ability to have a redundant box there to take over should the first one fail. And when that request came in at the time, this was, again, 10, 15 years ago, a long time ago, um, the DEs looked, and there was an, uh, an aux port on the box, and the DE said, well, that's not being used. So, you know, it only had two network interfaces on the box, and there was an aux port. So they decided, hey, we'll use that aux port to use to communicate messages uh, between the, the two boxes. So they devised a protocol that worked on that 15-pin uh, aux port and created a serial uh, failover cable, which was six feet long, to connect the boxes, and they communicated to each other. 
And uh, that would allow the two boxes to talk to each other and to say, you know, which one was uh, the active unit, which one was standby, and to replicate the configuration so that they were in sync. And also to check the hardware and the software status to make sure that, um, you know, both were the same types of devices because you didn't want, you know, the, the active box being a more powerful box than the standby because if things failed, you know, if the box failed over, you might not be able to handle all the users. So therefore, you know, we have these requirements that uh, both boxes be identical in hardware and in uh, software licenses. Um, so, yeah, you know, when we talk about these two boxes, there's a, a distinct way that we refer to them. We've got uh, two categories, really. There's what we define the box, and that's either a primary or a secondary, and that's always with the box. The box is always primary or the box is always secondary. And then we have the failover state of that box. Either it's your active box or it's your standby box. And in some cases, depending on your configuration, you can have what we call active-active, but that's a whole other can of worms. Uh, it's very important to understand that distinction. Right, and the, and the primary and secondary is really what we call the unit designator. And back in yeah. the old days when we had the serial cable, one end of the cable was actually labeled primary, and based on the pinout, you know, the box knew that it was a primary, and the other end was labeled secondary, and that box knew it was secondary. And when you plugged the cable in, the box became that. When we moved the LAN-based failover with uh, the FWSM and the ASA, the user has to manually define that within the configuration to tell it, you know, because there is no serial cable anymore, we have to tell it which box is which. Yeah, and who's who. Um, for us in TAC, it's very important when you open a case or if you have any issues with the failover to understand the difference between you know primary versus secondary and the concept of active versus standby. Uh, a lot of times we get you know customers get confused. They say that my primary box has now become secondary or my active box is now secondary, and that really doesn't. Well, the active box now secondary can sometimes make sense, but you have to make sure you specifically say you know my active primary is now failed and I'm running active on my secondary. It's th that kind of specification that we're looking for. So um, we know that a, 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 the unit designation is that one physical box, you know, if it's racked up, the top box may be uh, primary in this, and the bottom box may be uh, secondary. So, but what's the difference between active and standby? Well, the active firewall is the only one that's actively passing traffic. Uh, your standby box basically sits idle until it becomes an active box because of some either unit failure of the uh, existing active or software or whatever the initial reasons we listed. But while it is uh, in standby mode, you can still connect to it via ASDM, SSH. Management's um, still possible. Yeah. Management's still possible. It's just transient traffic that if it's sent to it, it would be dropped. Just drops it. So the, the way that we keep track of different interfaces uh, on the firewall is by sending a sort of hello. And that's how we can tell if a particular uh, network segment or link is degraded. And one firewall can take over if it's more healthy than another firewall. And so the interface uh, up count is one of those things that we take in, uh, into place. So um, the other thing that Magnus mentioned is management of a, a standby firewall. And in order to do that, you actually have to configure a standby IP on the interface where you'll be contacting the firewall. So if you're on the inside, the inside interface must have a standby IP. So what do we use the standby IP for? I mean, just checking on the status of that firewall? What, I mean, Well, a couple of things. I mean, you can connect via ASDM, SSH, Telnet, you know, whatever you have configured. And also, if you have logging configured on the standby firewall, the, the source of that traffic is going to come from the standby IP. Okay. 
so another thing that um, having a standby IP is, is essential for, it's for monitoring uh, of these interfaces, which by default is turned on on the ASA platform and is not enabled on the firewall service module platform, is that the two, um, the interfaces, say the inside interface of the firewall, will send messages back and forth on that physical link just to verify that they are receiving each other's messages. Both, both the active and the standby send out hellos, and yeah. those have to be acknowledged. And that's how they track whether that interface is uh, is up and operational or not. Yep, and they they don't send it to like a multicast address or anything. They send it directly to the peer interface. So the active sends uh, the packets to the standby, and the standby uh, sends them uh, to the active. And if you do a, we'll talk about this a bit later. But if you do show fail, it'll show you that um, the interface is either in status normal, which means that it's receiving those hellos, or it'll be in waiting, which means it's not receiving those hellos. And so that's a indicative of that there's probably some sort of um, layer two problem or some other issue there on the network. Um, so the fact that they're they're sending back and forth um, these these interface hellos brings up a good point. I mean, um, when when a failover actually occurs, um, the two firewalls actually swap MACs and swap IPs on all interfaces. So the one IP that doesn't change though is the actual failover IP that's in the failover configuration. And so these hellos continue going back and forth with their uh, destination and their source before the failover actually happened without a problem, and they're received and acknowledged since the uh, standby and the, and the active failover IPs are not swapped. Yep, and the, you can set timers for how, um, how often these hellos are being sent. So, and just to back up a, a little bit, there's what we call um, unit health monitoring and interface health monitoring. So unit health monitoring is when the devices send um, hellos back and forth across the failover link. And that's, that's the LAN failover the link. The LAN failover link, right. right. So, uh, you know, with the, with the ASA platforms, we no longer can use the serial interface, so we um, use a hardware, you know, Ethernet interface to connect the two devices. And so the two units will send these uh, unit hellos uh, back and forth over that link, and can you can you use any Ethernet face on the firewall? Yes, you can. Um, you can use any interface. Um, there's restrictions though for uh, we want you to have the failover LAN link be as fast as any other interface. No, that's for the state link. That's for the state link. The state okay. Link. Yeah. Yep. Um, so if which uh, we haven't talked about yet, which we haven't well, talked maybe about maybe we should segue into that right now. Okay. Be a good time. Yep. So, so there's there's two interfaces that can be used for failover. One's called the LAN failover link, which is required, which replaces a serial failover cable from the PIC stays, and it is where the config replication takes place, as well as all the command and control channels sent on that LAN link. Optionally, you can also have a stateful failover link, where we use that to replicate the connection information and uh, translations and, and a bunch of other stuff on that stateful link. Um, that's optional, and those can be two separate interfaces, two separate physical interfaces, or you can combine them and have the LAN and, and state link on the same physical interface. Um, the requirement is that the state link be as fast or faster than the fastest data passing interface in the box. So if you have a 535 uh, picks and using gig interfaces, then the, the state link needs to be um, that speed as well. On the ASAs, we don't really have um, that big of an uh, issue because all the interfaces are typically the same speed with the exception of the 5510 uh, Security Plus bundles where the first two interfaces um, are gig links. But in that case, the 5510 can't send a gig worth of traffic, so any interface can be used. Um, the other exception is the 5580 where you can have a single gig or 10 gig, and in that case, um, that, that requirement doesn't need to be there either. The state link can be either the 10 gig link or the single gig. The one thing it cannot be, though, is the management, one of the two management interfaces, because um, those two ports are just not designed to send high-speed uh, traffic through. 
So you said that um, this connection replication across the state link was optional. So let's say I don't configure that. Um, what, what are my risks as far as uh, the effect of a, you know, the active unit having a power failure? Right, so if a, if a power failure occurs and the standby unit would detect that and immediately uh, become the new active unit um, and it would start passing traffic. However, any of the connections that were previously established on the box that died, those would need to get reestablished. So for TCP connections, that means that they would abruptly, those connections would abruptly end, and the end host would have to restart that communication again. So reinitiate that TCP connection. On if optionally, if stateful failover is used, then those that uh, connections are replicated. So from an end user perspective, uh, they don't know that a failover actually took place. They don't know that there was a power outage. It's it's uh, it's uh, a non-issue to them. They they can't tell that anything happened. So do we replicate every single connection that goes through the firewall? Um, so we replicate the TCP and UDP connections going through the firewall, except for HTTP by default. Um, and the reason is that you know traditional HTTP connections are very short-lived, um, and you know it comprises a lot of the traffic through the firewall. So by not replicating by default the HTTP connections, then in the event of a failover, you know, the impact of the users because of the HTTP protocol might be minimal. And also it saves a lot of overhead on the firewall replicating those HTTP connections over to the firewall, over um, to the standby firewall. So I mean, there's a few other things that we don't actually replicate besides uh, HTTP, well, it, if you enable it. Um, WebVPN, we do not replicate uh, any sort of WebVPN sessions, uh, as well as UAuth sessions are not replicated, uh, except for on the firewall service module. Uh, the other thing that's not replicated is stuff like dynamic routing, OSPF, EIGRP. Uh, those kind of things just simply aren't well, passed the, across. The dynamic routing table, table. isn't replicated. Right? The configuration the is replicated, uh, and in the event of a failover, essentially it has to go through and rebuild the table, uh, but the actual routing table with regards to dynamic is not replicated over. Right. And, and one thing that I think we should touch on, too, is that um, we haven't talked about yet, but the, how, how long it takes to uh, detect the failover. So um, we have sub-second uh, failover detection, so you can tune the timers, which by default the unit timers, I think, uh, the the default hold time is 15 seconds, so in the event of a power loss, uh, you could take 15 seconds for it to failure, but you can tune that down to be sub-second, down to 800 milliseconds, um, so that we can detect a failure within a second and failover and actively pass traffic. So from the end user perspective, you know, they, they wouldn't notice an 800 millisecond outage. And is that, so. is that really recommended? I mean, what kind of pitfalls? Why don't we just set it down to 800 milliseconds and call yeah. it a day? So the, the only downside of, of doing that is on very heavily loaded boxes, right? With 800 milliseconds, the pull time is going to be 250 milliseconds. And at most, you know, you, you miss three hello packet uh, messages. So if there's any uh, data loss on that link, which there shouldn't be, or if there was a CPU spike and, and something hogged the CPU for any length of time, there's the chance that you could have um, false positive failovers in that case. However, they are pretty rare, but that's the, uh, that's the potential downside to it. So we have this situation of two boxes being connected by a LAN wire, right, an RJ45 um, uh, Ethernet cable. So is, aren't there some security risk uh, in between the two boxes? I mean, shouldn't we consider uh, a hub or a tab being connected in between and people stealing information from the wire? Well, that, that is a possibility, but, you know, where the ASAs are deployed, um, you know, we hope that there's some type of physical security there already. However, for those customers that want additional security, you can encrypt that uh, LAN communication link such that um, any messages sent across it are encrypted. It does require that your license uh, support encryption, 
but other than that, uh, there is a little additional overhead because we are encrypting all those messages, but it, it does work flawlessly. So we have some considerations there, not only connections that are built, but also VPNs are terminating on the box and you need to um, encrypt the passwords, the, the shared secrets that go across that line, et cetera. Yep. Makes sense. And so one, one thing we haven't talked about yet is how you, how you manage a failover pair of firewalls. So, you know, you've got two firewalls there. One's ready to, the standby is ready to take over for the active in the event that it, it needs to if the active fails for some reason. So, really, you're, you're not going to be configuring both firewalls after the initial failover configuration where both firewalls are what we call bootstrapped. Um, you'll only configure the active firewall. So, if you wanted to add, uh, say, a new interface to the firewall, you wanted to change some configuration, you would just SSH into, into just the active firewall. You would make those changes, and whenever you make a change, that uh, command line will, uh, command will be replicated to the standby firewall over that failover link. So Right, and there is one quick caveat to that, and, you know, coming back to the encryption, is that if you're going to encrypt the failover link, you probably don't want to send the encryption key that you're going to use over the failover link you know, to replicate the config. So it's, it's better to actually bring failover down and then configure the, uh, the, the encryption key on both of the firewalls and then bring fail, failover back up. So following up to what Jay said, um, when, you, as, as when you actively manage the uh, active unit that's passing traffic, and as soon as you enter a command, that command is instantaneously uh, entered exactly as you enter it on the active unit. It's replicated and entered on the, on the standby unit. So your configuration will always be in sync. One thing you might note is if you don't know which box is active and you're constantly in envy like a terminal server or something and you happen to get on the standby box and enter a command, you'll notice that a warning comes back and tells you that the configurations are no longer in sync. Um, and that's letting you know that you entered a command on the box that isn't active, so it's actually in standby mode, and you really need to enter that command on the active unit. So you can go back over to the active unit and re-enter that command in, um, or you can do um, a no on that <laughs> command. <laughs> I mean, if, if you get if they get out of sync, you can always do something like hop onto the active box and do a, a right standby, and that will flush everything but the bootstrapped failover config on your standby okay. box. Okay, but wait, I mean, we have a lot of customers that inappropriately run that command very frequently to you know, save the config or whatever on the standby. But you know, let's be very clear that the right standby should only be used if you know that the configuration on the standby is incorrect mm -hmm. and the configuration on the active box is correct. If they're right. out of sync. If they're yeah. out right. of sync. And, and the only way they should have ever gotten out of sync is if a user manually went on the standby and executed commands. Right. Exactly. And a standard write on the active unit will write the config on the standby as well. So. It'll write whatever is currently running on the standby. Yeah. So if they're still out of sync and you do a write, well, uh, more specifically, if you do a write memory, exactly. right, then um, you should, when you do a write memory on the active unit, it automatically saves that on uh, the standby unit. Yep. And some, uh, just real quick, some interesting commands you can run. Uh, show failover will show you the status of the c current firewall that you're on. Because uh, if you SSH into a firewall and it's in a failover pair, um, there's no way to know exactly which firewall you're on. Uh, an easy way to do it is just to do a show fail. You can also change the, con the, the prompt for um, the command line session to tell you specifically if you're on the active box or the standby box. Right, and that's very useful because otherwise, as Jay was saying, you know, the configs are identical uh, with the exception of the failover lane unit primary, failover lane unit secondary. So uh, if you get on the box, the prompt's going to be the same whether it's the active or standby. So you really have no way of telling which box you're on unless you do a show fail or if you change the prompt. So that's really a recommended um, configuration is to change the prompt such that it displays not only the host name but the, the unit designator and the state so that it'll tell you whether it's the primary 
uh, or the secondary, and whether it's the active or the standby. Yep, and starting in version 8.0, um, you don't even have to log into the standby firewall to run commands. You can run the command uh, from the active, you can run failover exec mate, and then give it a command, and it'll uh, run that command. It'll send the command over to the standby box, or the active box, whichever is the mate, and then uh, send you back the output. So if you wanted to get, uh, say, a show version from the standby firewall, you could log into the active and run failover exec mate show version, and it would run that command and display it on the active on your active session. Okay, uh, that's it for uh, failover part one. Next episode, we're going to talk about uh, specific failover troubleshooting and some common uh, common problems our customers run into, and what to do if you think your firewall's failed over, and how to uh, work with attack to determine the co the root cause of that failover. Thanks for listening. Uh, please send your to your topic suggestions and comments to securityshow at cisco.com. Remember, you can always open a TAC case at www.cisco.com/tac or by calling 1-800-553-2447, aka 1-800-553-CHIP. Thanks for listening to this episode of the TAC Security Show. To learn more about what was discussed in this episode, including device configuration and specific examples, and how to listen to other episodes, go to www.cisco.com slash go slash security podcast and navigate to the tax security show section.